Okay, we are in the Gospel of Matthew. We're doing discussions in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've completed the um, section of the Sermon on the Mount and moving into two chapters, really a chapter and two-thirds, that are somewhat tied together to move into a next section, which begins at chapter 10, but really begins right at the end of chapter 9. So I don't know how long it'll take us to get through this part, so I just put part one in there, and we'll see how that goes. We're going to pick it up at uh, chapter 8, and we're going to look at some different responses to the person and the ministry of Jesus. Uh, It's interesting how they contrast, so I'm hoping that we'll be able to take a look at that. So we begin with chapter 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. I'm going to stop at this point and talk about this. This is the first one. This is clearly in the context of Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. The Messiah was going to come and restore all things. The Messiah was going to uh, take away uh, sickness and he was going to take away uh, evil and he was going to take away all those things. And so we have this leper who hearing the Beatitudes and knowing what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount, says to the Lord, if you're willing, you can cleanse me. He knows who he is. And Jesus said, I am willing. And he cleanses him. Now you would think, if you grew up in a Christian context, well, that's good enough. If Jesus cleansed him, that's it. But Jesus says to him, I want you to go show yourself to the priest. The Mosaic law said that when a leper uh, was believed to be cleansed, he had to go and show himself to the priest. And they would examine him to see if he was in fact cleansed. And then he would give an offering, a thanksgiving offering, to the Lord in the context of that. And what Jesus says is, my healing you is a fulfillment of the promises made in the covenant at Sinai, and you will give testimony to that. I think it's really important for us to understand that the commandments uh, are not, in the new covenant, are not about the letter, but the spirit of the law, and the intent is the glorification of God. And so here becomes a testimony to the priests, because I can imagine... At the time of Jesus, there are not a lot of lepers being cleansed. So, most of the visual uh, examination of the priests are, yes, you still have leprosy. Yes, you still have leprosy. But this guy is going to come to the priest and he's going to say, you don't have leprosy. How did that happen, right? And he's going to talk about this Jesus who taught and then touched him. And healed him. So this is clearly within the house of Israel. A testimony of the coming of the Messiah. And the glory of the Messiah. So we're going to stop there. 
You, you got it on? All right. So the question is, is this predominantly a physical healing or a spiritual? How would the people of Israel see that? Um, I think at the time, what they see is if you have this disease, you are unclean. It's highly contagious, and so they are to stay away. They have to yell unclean. So they are, in a sense, ostracized, having to live in leper colonies away from the people. Uh, For him to be able to be healed uh, should indicate to them that something spiritual is going on. Um, Because it simply isn't something that happened regularly. So I think, though, we get a greater understanding of the blindness that many of the leadership had to this having spiritual implications uh, later when the uh, lame man is is healed, when Jesus says, um, your sins are forgiven, and they go crazy. So this is subtly there, but it's clearly there that something unique is going on that's not just about Uh, the physical healing of this one man, but a promise to the kingdom of Israel. So, So is this leprosy Hansen's disease or is it something else? You will get scholars that argue both sides of that. Um, The most recent research I've read, and about every 10 or 15 years there's a new uh, discussion of this. The most recent one is saying, yes, this is the, uh, what we uh, consider Hansen's disease. Now, there is other things that are under the guise of leprosy, like leprosy in the walls, that is more related to mold kind of things. So leprosy, it, for them, is a broad concept of anything that is permeating and destroying. Uh, but Hansen's disease would be included in that in that context. So we're going to move on. Um, we're, we're going? Okay. So uh, the next one is uh, Jesus entering, verse 5, Jesus entered Capernaum and a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness and in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now this one is both encouraging to us as Gentiles and discouraging to those who care about Israel and Israel's salvation. 
There seems to be, and maybe we know it because of church history as well, that it, the people that you would think know God best seem to trust Him least. And sometimes those who are from the edge have a greater faith. And so in the midst of this, this centurion who's a Gentile comes up and says to Jesus, my servant's paralyzed and tormented, uh, come and heal him. And Jesus says, I will. And he immediately says, look, you don't have to come. I know that you have the power to simply say the word and, and his body will obey your word. Because I'm a man under authority and I know how authority works. And you clearly, Lord, have authority. And Jesus is shocked. Because he's not seen that among the people of Israel. Here's a Gentile who has a greater faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob than the, the Jewish people themselves. At least the leaders. And so he says to them... Many will come down, come in the kingdom and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They'll be in the kingdom and they will celebrate with the patriarchs. But some of the leadership and some of those who should know better will be cast out. Not only cast out, not will they not only dine, but they will be in Gehenna. They will be in the fires of hell uh, where there is weeping and wailing, and gnashing of teeth. That's a major contrast between the promises made to Israel that many of them may not receive, and those who, to whom the promises were afar off, who were without hope and without God in the world, are now being made near by the Messiah. Both of those uh, contrasts are shown here. So we get a very fascinating notion that it is not necessarily those who have the training in the faith who have faith in God. So when Jesus says, um, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. Sons of the kingdoms there are the Jewish people who rightfully have the uh, promises made to them. Uh, it's what Paul talks about in Romans when he says, uh, what advantage is the Jew much in every way? To them was given the promises. Was them, They were given the, the uh, uh, oracles of, of God. They were given the covenants. They were given the ministry of the tabernacle so that they would see the revelation of God and know Him up front and close. And yet... Because of the hardness of heart and the blindness of their faith, uh, many will not. And this is why Paul says later, My heart's desire is that I could be cut off for the sake of my brethren after the flesh. They, they are the ones that should have the closest access to this. And they don't. And he says the reason they don't is that they are not aware of the righteousness of God by faith, which is what Abraham had. And they go along trying to establish their own righteousness on the basis of the law. Uh, a misuse of the law. The law was not meant to save anybody. It's for those who are saved to know 
the direction of God's commands. And it's the spirit, not the letter, because the letter kills and the spirit makes alive. So Paul addresses this all through Romans, uh, I think drawing off of these stories of Jesus' ministry. Okay, so the question is, does this cast out into outer darkness and wailing and gnashing teeth? Is that permanent? Uh, Yeah, this is those who will not believe will be cast out. These are probably some of those who will say, Lord, we did all this stuff in your name. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Uh, which he was talking about in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, they are people who do not have faith and trust as the basis of their humility before God to receive his mercy, but in some sense believe that by their own works of righteousness, they will earn salvation, which they will not do. And therefore, they'll be thrust out. So, so the question is really about, so when does this happen? When is the casting out and when is the sitting down? He says that the sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is in the kingdom. So this is the time from the second coming, as we understand it. Uh, they would simply, the Jews simply believed that when the Messiah came, he was going to establish the kingdom. He was going to raise the dead. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the kingdom would be restored to the throne of David. The son of David would sit on it. And they would be the uh, head of all nations. They didn't think about going to heaven. They thought about the kingdom of heaven coming to them. So that's what they're thinking. Jesus is talking about that. We understand that as happening when the Lord returns. He will raise the dead. He will establish the kingdom. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be part of the resurrection. And there will be a celebration of all that God has promised. And Paul tells us that the Gentiles are fellow heirs of those promises. So we will be able to do that. But there are some... Now, not all Gentiles are going to be in there, right? And there are some who are Jewish and believe that they are entitled to that who will not receive it because they are not receiving it by grace through faith, but by works and self-righteousness. The question here is, uh, the centurion, in some sense, has greater faith than, than Martha, who when her brother dies, she says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Uh, a little bit in Martha's defense. Uh, well, I agree generally you're right about that. A little bit in Martha's defense. When you're up against the loss of immediate relative, and in this case, the head of the household, uh, there's a ten- we all have that tendency of, God, if you had really been here, this wouldn't have happened. Now, the truth is, if Jesus had been there, it still would have happened. That's why he says to his disciples, I'm glad I'm not there, so that now you'll understand the glory of God. Right? So this, this, uh, this problem is, we all, in some sense, are short-sighted. And I think the more we are, um, the more we are close to God, the more we have a tendency for our faith to take these things for granted. And that's something I'm trying to work on in my own life, where I sometimes don't even ask, you know, the scripture says, you ask, you have not because you don't ask. And you ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss. 
I think I'm probably really good at not asking when I should and asking amiss when I ask. So I'm, I'm kind of, that's part of my uh, current struggle, particularly in regard to the fact that it appears that wherever God was sending his servants, there was some manifestation of the kingdom and the manifestations of the kingdom always seem to include healings and uh, miracles in some sense. Now, I'm not suggesting that those should happen daily. I do think that there's a ebb and flow of those. But there seems to be some manifestation from time to time to remind us that that kingdom is not that far away from us. That it's closer here than, than we think. So... Okay, this is the interesting one. Uh, verse 14. Now we've got a real strong one that just happened, right? The leper and a testimony to uh, the leadership of Israel through the priest. And then we have the Gentile who uh, amazes Jesus with his faith. And then we have this one. When Jesus came into Peter's house, remember he's in Capernaum. He saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed and he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Now, it feels to me, seems to me, I respond to this healing of Peter's mother-in-law as if it's fairly mundane. The leper is cast away from people. The paralyzed uh, servant can do nothing and is tormented in his paralysis and pain. Those are, those are big, big deals. Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. Now, we've, we've had fevers, and fevers are not good, and she's incapacitated by the fever. But the text we have says nothing about anything other than Jesus sees she has it, and he takes care of it, and she gets up immediately and starts serving him. And then, people start, boy, they are, the stories are around, so they start bringing everybody. Right? And, and Matthew tells us that Jesus is pretty much healing everybody. The terribly ill and the somewhat mundane illnesses. And then he tells us why. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He took our infirmities and carried our diseases. We see here in Matthew's understanding that Jesus' ministry of healing, his ministry of healing in all circumstances, because there, there's plenty of places where the scripture says he healed everybody who came to him. I mean, this is an amazing thing. That's why they think the kingdom is about to happen right now. And what he's doing is, he is manifesting who he is. The Jews believed that the Messiah would be able to prevent illness 
And he would be able to cure all sicknesses, cast out demons, and take care of all of the problems so that the resurrection and the kingdom to come would be very much like the Garden of Eden where there was no illness and there was no sickness and there was no death. And so uh, Matthew, I think, is giving us an understanding by adding Peter's wife in here and then all of the others that this is uh, the entire spectrum that Jesus is addressing so that they will understand that the kingdom is near. The kingdom is beginning to uh, uh, break out, if you will, into this, into this world. I want to, um, you know what? I think I want to uh, stop here. Because we're going to do the discipleship testing uh, some more and move into chapter 9. And I think those will work uh, better together. So um, let's, uh, let's ring the bell.